Welcome to Cinemascope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to Cinemascope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to Cinemascope today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. I got shipping notification on my first product. Ooh. It's the poster. I'm pretty excited about it. Very exciting. I've got a place for it in my office and everything. That's awesome. Did you get the big one or the little one? <laughs> Please. A gentleman <laughs> does not truck in small posters. <laughs> <laughs> no, I got the big one. I got the big one. Well, it's medium. They, they didn't even let us do a big one. Right. So it's, right. The, it's the biggest available. But I'm pretty excited about it. That's awesome. Yeah. Have you, have you ordered anything yet? Because you're kind of the figurehead of the show. So one would think that you would jump right on. I've been waiting to sit down with my wife and go through it 
so we could all pick stuff and order together. Oh. And it was just not one of those uh, weeks to do that. Yeah. No, I understand. Yeah. Uh, it was a good week. Uh, you know what I watched? <laughs> I'm a little embarrassed. First of all, let me just get this out front. I have had uh, so much coffee today that it should qualify as substance abuse. Uh, nice. I, my wife is out of town, and I just kept making pots of coffee. And so I'm, <laughs> me and the four people I drank enough coffee for are uh, are pretty thrilled to be here. Uh, now, what, awesome. was I, what was I saying? The movie I watched uh, this week, besides all the other movies that we're talking about on the show that I watched, uh, was Hot Tub Time Machine 2. Oh, I didn't see the second one. Yeah, that's okay. I'm that's okay, okay having to It's having okay. That you one. know what? You did. You have seen it. <laughs> you may not think you've seen it, but you've seen it. I see. Yeah. No, there were some funny bits, but mostly not. The kid, the young, the younger guy. Right. I can't think of his name. He's funny. Is he? He's funnier in this one than he was in the first one. He has a little bit bigger role. Well, yeah. I mean, I liked him in the... Because, well, he... Yeah, what is the thing with him in this one? He, well, he's the he. It, it, it they go into the future, into an alternate Back to the Future future. It's a Back to the Future three alternate timeline future past thing. Okay, where they're in the future, but actually a right, guy from right, an alternate right. past came, and there's an assassination attempt, and he was shot in the in the bits and pieces, uh, and they put him in the time machine tub tub time machine and they tried to send him back in the future but apparently according to chevy chase the hot tub time machine it doesn't send you where you want to go it sends you where you need to go and in this case they went to an alternate timeline uh where the hot tub time machine doesn't exist where it's just a uh, uh, hot tub well and and you know uh it's it's craziness ensues i don't even know yeah i mean it's just you know craziness that you've seen I feel like I'm okay. No, oh, yeah, totally. Okay, I think that goes without saying. What about you? Do you have anything good going on this week? This I watched The week? Revenant, and I oh, uh, I heard I about really, this tough really one. Enjoyed. Was it's it tough? just it's just it, there's it's pretty brutal, but man, is it good? Is it that is it his kid? Does he have a kid that gets eaten by a bear? Is that kind of how it works? Nope. That's pretty much what I think about the movie. There is a bear. There is a kid. Not his kid. Really... Okay. No, it's his kid. It's his kid. Oh. But his kid he's, is he's what? Got a kid. Shot. He's kid, shot no, by a projectile. Not, his kid he's is not crushed shot, by a rock. Nor, nor touched by a bear. Crushed by a stone. Disease. There's a disease. <laughs> That's the black plague. This is a meteor. A very small little asteroid. <laughs> heat vision. Someone has heat vision. Am I close? Gosh, you're just getting gingivitis. <laughs> Plaque. Gum Dental disease. disease. <laughs> there was a killer back worms. then. Worms. Worms. Some sort of uh, gut worm. <laughs> Alien. <laughs> Just keep on going, See? man. Keep on going. Yep. Caffeine, baby. No, it's, it's, a great, uh, it's a great movie. And uh, what really blows me away is just watching the camera work in that film and the way that, uh, that Inyaritu stitches shots together like he did in Birdman. He, did the, he does this thing where he has a cameraman and the guy has a camera... And they just go ahead and push him off a cliff following a horse is what I see. There, that's in there. And there's, there's, an, there's, there's just <laughs> some amazing stuff in there that clearly there's no way a camera could do the things that it's doing. 
but it's exhilarating to watch. And it's just proof that you don't have to cut action like Michael Bay does, or even Paul Greengrass for that matter. And you can still make it incredibly exhilarating. And uh, so I, I was very excited watching the film. Uh, just a wonderful film. DiCaprio is fantastic. Uh, the score is gorgeous. Uh, everything about it really is top notch. Well, I appreciate your review of it, and it makes me want to see it even uh, a little bit more. And I didn't. I I was sort of willing to let this go. You think this is one I need to hit in the theaters for sure? Absolutely. Okay. And bigger, when I bigger it, and louder I like, the better. This is the film that should have been shot in seventy millimeter, not oh, hateful yeah. eight. Yep. But then this is also a film that could never have actually been shot in super in in uh, seventy super seventy millimeter. Yeah. Yeah. Two two. Uh, uh, amazing that well the the camera work is just too fantastical to be done with an actual film camera see i thought that was supposed to make us mad no when you have unbelievable camera movements i thought that i thought we were supposed to be angry at that now as purists are we not purists no i, I kind of go with the wind <laughs> just looking <laughs> looking for a ruling not finding one <laughs> Uh, I think we need to probably tell people where we're from. Yes, where are we from? This is the next reel on Rashpixel.fm, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that right there is Andy Nelson. Howdy, howdy, howdy. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, more from our longtime friend of the show, David Mamet. And his work as a screenwriter this week with 1987 mob classic, The Untouchables. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show on iTunes or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And hey, you ever pushed a baby carriage down the stairs to see if a hunky cop of questionable heritage would catch it on his calf? Then you should head over to The Next Reel's Instagram, hashtag PonyPrize, hashtag GuessTheMovieChallenge. And with that, let's hop on a plane to the Scottish border, where our very own Stephen Smart is on a stakeout in the middle of nowhere, hoping to stop an illegal shipment of Irish whiskey from getting across. Hey guys, this week we jump to 1945 with the colourful noir, Leave Her to Heaven, starring Jean Tierney, Cornell Wilde and Vincent Price. At the other Scotty nailed it on image two, making it two weeks in a row. So congrats and you're entered once again into the Pony Prize hat. And just a quick reminder that new challenges now start on Mondays. So thanks guys and see you later. We've got some more follow-up from our dear friend uh, Ben Lott writing in with the Blot Spot about the verdict. I love courtroom dramas and I think Paul Newman was great in the verdict. I didn't like the subplot of the awkward romance, which seemed to come out of nowhere for no reason. But when it ended up weaving into the main plot, I was pleased. I think there were some huge legal loopholes that this movie didn't properly address, but if you can accept the fairy tale legal logic of the movie, it works just fine. My only complaint would be that the ending was a quiet one that focused on character, when I would have enjoyed a more celebratory ending that gave us a cathartic moment to cheer when he won the case. Your rank 132, my rank 49. I think what I'm reading in that is the the subtext is uh, Pete, you ruined this for me and Andy. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> if the uh, ranking went my way, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I read. He was very delicate uh, uh, in his review of the verdict, but I that's what I read. That's what I heard. 
Very funny. Uh, Very special funny. thanks to Optimulus, uh, who wrote in on Letterboxd uh, about our review of The Verdict. Great episode and a good film selection. I like the film in general, but while the jury's verdict felt earned, their request to increase the compensation felt a bit off to me. Uh, and, you know, uh, I don't know. I actually like that part. You I think do? that's I think that's where we came down to. I kind of like the, the money bit. Did that feel off, off to you? Well... Only in the sense that, you know, the ending just feels a little off. Yeah. Let's, and, and let's I just think say the ending is on. Does the money part feel make it worse? It doesn't make it worse for me. I okay. think, I think if anything, it at least gives me a sense that there's more justice. Um, but I think, the, you know, I think that all of that could have felt better. Even the money part, I think that could have felt better if there was that more celebratory Hollywood type of ending. I think it would mm. have made me little happier and maybe optimulus as well well uh thank you optimulus for writing in from letterbox we appreciate the comments coming in from over there uh, and i think with that it is time andrew let's do trailers i'm pretty excited for my trailer pete yeah you would be the conjuring to mm-hmm. the enfield poltergeist i don't i don't i don't i don't did like you see it. the first one did you try no it? no no, I didn't see the first one. <laughs> the story of Ed and Lorraine. <sighs> Crying out loud. Go on, do your spiel. I, I, well, it's it's. I think it's really interesting that James Wan has tapped into this uh, kind of quote-unquote true stories from Lorraine and Ed Warren um, where they try helping families with poltergeists that are bothering them. The first film I thought was a lot of fun. The second film... They go to uh, to North London to help a single mother who's raising four children alone in a house plagued by malicious spirits. And it just, it, you know, I love this couple. I think that uh, Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga are a great couple. They both look so good in these films. I think that James Wan has kind of found um, a, a muse with Patrick Wilson. I think they work really well together. And I love seeing them um, working here in these movies. I think that James Wan has really been crafting some strong um, films in the horror genre. And I think that he also has done really well for himself as far as um, uh, sequels. I think that he has proven that he can make a sequel that doesn't end up falling apart. He did a great job with Insidious 2. He did a, a great job with Furious 7. And I think this one looks just downright creepy, and I am uh, I'm pretty excited to see this one. What about you? I'm not excited about it at all. Uh, when the crosses all turn upside down and there's actually a dude living in the wallpaper, uh, I was done. I was <laughs> I was done and uh, resented this pick from you. So uh, I'm glad that this film exists so that it can satisfy other people's need for this kind of stuff. It's too freaky. Too my much. Gift, my too gift freaky. To you, Pete. My gift. Mm-mm-mm. I can't believe Vera Farmiga. I have such. Uh, I hold her in such high esteem, and then she goes and she does things like this. I'm like, I can now. I can't, can't have her for dinner. <laughs> and Bates Motel. Like she's she's into this stuff. I know. I, love it. I know. It's not good. It's great. <sighs> What'd you think this, of mine? Uh, Did you see well, mine? Oh, this 20- opens June 10th. Okay. Well, 2016. I'll, I'll be out of town. I'll be uh, I'll be dragging you to the theater. I'm going to drug you <laughs> and carry you to the theater and put you in the seat so the drugs wear off just as the movie starts. 
What do you think of that? I think that's terrible. Is it going to be, you're going to do the drug that makes me uh, keep my eyes open? Like yep. the. Uh, and, 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 right. It'll numb your body. Your body won't be able to move at all. What was the serpent and the rainbow drug? <laughs> yes. Do a little voodoo. Exactly. I don't like that. <laughs> did you watch mine? I did. Kind of a funky trailer. I'm talking about Colonia. Colonia. This is uh, from uh, director Florian Gallenberger. Written by uh, Gallenberger and Torsten Wenzel. Uh, and it stars uh, Daniel Brühl and uh, Michael Nyquist and Emma Watson, among others. And I don't think I have it figured out. I, I can't tell from the trailer what kind of a film this is going to be. And that's uh, I think that's probably a good thing. Uh, it, it's uh, Emma Watson joins a cult to go find her political uh, rabble-rouser of a boyfriend. And that's pretty much all I've got. But the cult, the whole environment of the cult, it's a, you know, it starts with them and their relationship, and there's a political uprising in the streets, and then they get caught by the state. And I don't quite understand the mechanics of who's on what side. But once she joins the cult, I'm in. I think it looks like a really taut little bit of, uh, of um, cultist thriller, and I like that. So I'm willing to give it a shot. It should be said, however, that I also have been just reminded this week that I predicted good things about Child 44. So that's on the table. What do you think? It's funny because I I find the actual first part of the film uh, or the trailer more interesting. And then once she goes <laughs> once she goes to the camp, I find it less interesting. The first part reminded me a bit of Costa Gavras's uh, Missing, which I thought was a pretty yep, interesting yep. Uh, film. And then... The second part, uh, I don't know if it's going to be kind of a, uh, I, I don't know. It's it's not quite Martha Marcy May Marlene, but it's a little bit of that. You know, we're getting that uh, creepy vibe um, of the uh, of the cult, and you know, we've got looks like a great leader for the cult, Michael Nickvist. Looks mm-hmm. like he's going to do a great job there. Um, yeah, but I, I, it seems like it's kind of blending a couple different uh, things going on here. So I'm curious to see. I have a feeling it's one of those movies where it's going to be more of the cult and the the opening yeah. bit um, in the trailer, like the first half of the trailer, is really probably like the first, you know, you know, it's probably the first sequence in the film. Yeah, <laughs> it I, just jumps into I, pretty linear. Yeah, exactly. I think that's probably what it's like. You know what I really like though is I like that Emma Watson is has truly, I think, really found her professional sort of sea legs after Harry Potter. I mean, she's done some really interesting stuff, and and this looks like just another uh, chance for her to pick a project that is you know out of her character, and I'm excited for that for her. I think that's great. I think the the best thing that came out of the Harry Potter franchise is that. Uh, they found some amazing, amazing young actors, yep. and I'm always blown away that that the leads from that franchise um, have never really strayed, and they just keep cranking out interesting things. Oh, uh, and what's the one we we just talked about? It was the uh, the the Moon Moonwalker, I think, right with Rupert Grint. Yeah, uh, that looks fantastic and weird and awesome, and um, you know, uh, uh, Harry Potter. Uh, what uh, Daniel Radcliffe has done right. just awesome thing after awesome thing even if it doesn't turn out to be an awesome movie he's he seems to have a a good head for for projects that showcase his uniquenesses yeah victor frankenstein i mean i heard it wasn't very good yeah but it looked interesting it did and, look interesting know, he'll be in now you see me too yeah now you see me too that's right so i i think it's great i think you're absolutely right and i i like watching these kids grow up i think that's really fun so here, here. Uh, no idea when this thing opens. It's on the trailer circuit right now. It says it opens in Russia March 31st. 
Uh, Germany, February 18th. Switzerland, uh, in the German-speaking region. And uh, uh, the Zurich Film Festival uh, was was in September. So it's out there. It's been out there since late 2015. But um, it, it uh, no idea when it's going to hit the U.S. Here endeth the lesson. I grew up in a tough neighborhood. Sometimes a reputation follows you. Robert De Niro is Al Capone. There is violence in Chicago, of course, but not by me and not by anybody I employ. And I'll tell you why, because it's not good business. Kevin Costner is Elliot Ness. I have sworn to put this man away with any and all legal means at my disposal, and I will do so. Sean Connery is Jimmy Malone. You want to get Capone? Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. You just joined the Treasury Department, son. Everybody knows where the booze is. The problem isn't finding it. Let's do some good! The problem is who wants to cross the pond. Somebody messes with me, I'm gonna mess with him. The Untouchables. Andrew, have you heard of this mm-hmm. film? You know, I think I have. It's an interesting one. It's an interesting one. 1987, I think, is the word on the street for this one. So uh, they say. So they say. It's a Brian De Palma joint. You know how we feel about that. We have talked about a few of his films before. We, we sure have. Uh, he's got an interesting swing for me. Got a real love-hate relationship with De Palma. Me too. Uh, this one is, uh, of course, is the story of a highly fictionalized tale of... Federal agent, Treasury agent Elliot Ness and his crusade to take down Al Capone in Chicago uh, in 1930. Uh, it stars uh, uh, Kevin Costner, Sean Connery, Charles Martin Smith, Andy Garcia, and Robert De Niro as the beaver, uh, Al Capone. <laughs> Uh, you know, I was, uh, we're, we're talking about this film because it is part of the catalog of films that was written by David Mamet, and this is our Written by David Mamet series. Right. Okay. So, uh, let's just start with Mamet, get out of the gate, uh, before we, uh, dig into some of the details. I find, I think this is an area that you and I, uh, disagree I find this film more of a case of that there is more Mamet in this film than there was in the film we talked about last week, The Verdict. Do you agree with on that point at all? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> See, I think there is, and I think it is pretty much whenever Connery opens his mouth or De Niro opens his mouth. I think there are some sequences when there is some 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 good Mamet, and I I do. I, I love those pieces, those segments. Unfortunately, it's not enough to to make this feel enough like a mammoth film for me, and that hurts my feelings. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think... Well, here's the thing. I When I say I don't feel like it's a mammoth... It doesn't feel like a mammoth script. It does, I, don't, I don't hear it. Uh, it. That really boils down to mammoth speak. And if we go back to... The films that we watched that were specifically um, written and directed by him, um, Red Belt and Spanish Prisoner, Spanish Prisoner, those definitely have mammoth speak. Absolutely. All the way through. The way that people talk, the way that the pacing of the dialogue is, that is, to me, really helps define a mammoth script. Now, that being said, 
I think there's a lot more that Mamet can do in a script than just write Mamet speak. And that's what I think he did bring to the table in The Verdict. And I do feel he actually does bring it to the table here. I think that stories of um, men in difficult situations is definitely something that, um, oddly, we really kind of explore in all four of the films that we're going to be talking about in this particular series. I don't think we particularly planned that, but looking at them, that's definitely the case. <laughs> that's true. And, yeah. <laughs> and I think that is something that he does write well. I think that he um, enjoys writing these uh, these situations with characters, uh, and it seems to be male characters, who are in these sorts of uh, difficult situations and trying to navigate. And I think that he does a great job with that. I think he does give the characters um, great speeches. I enjoy the speeches in both of the films. I think that uh, I, I think that the character development is less in this film than it was in the verdict. I enjoyed the, the down on his luck character. I felt like there was a lot more character growth in the verdict here. I didn't find it um, really any growth, but I, um, I don't know if I pin that to Mamet. Um, I, I'm not quite sure yet, but focusing specifically on him, I, I do feel like he, like there are elements here that, that are his. I just don't feel like it feels as much his as some of the stuff that he wrote and directed himself. I, you know, this is one of those funny things where I, I you know, he's a, he's a, in, in this case, he's kind of a, um, you know, he comes in, he, he writes a script and he hands it over and he's got, he's got kind of the Sorkin vibe, the, the stuff we're seeing from Sorkin right now, you know, he kind of takes ownership of the property and, and he develops it as a, as his thing. And even De Palma says, you know, this was Mamet's thing. You know, he took some of my ideas in the script, but mostly he ditched them and, and this was his thing. And it, uh, and this was shortly after the film came out like a month after the film came out he's you know De Palma was saying this was this was Mamet's script uh and so it very much tells I think the the it is the cultural mirror that Mamet wants us to see about these as you say male characters that are in difficult situations the thing the problem that I have with it is it feels so much like and maybe it's because Mamet didn't direct it but it feels very much like this movie is exactly the sum of its parts and no more. There is no magic for me that happens at the intersection between a, a, an otherwise compelling cast, a compelling director, and a compelling screenwriter. It is a Venn diagram of three circles that, that either overlap very, very faintly, if at all. And, and that is, is the problem that I have on this viewing of the film. It is just, uh, it, it's pretty staid for me. Uh, and doesn't doesn't really hold up as much as my memory had um, had uh, uh, carried it. Yeah, same here. And and you know, I looked at Roger Ebert's review, and I, I kind of agree with what he wrote. He said the script is by David Mamet, the Pulitzer Prize winning playwright, but it could have been by anybody. It doesn't have the Mamet touch, the conversational rhythms that carry a meaning beyond words. That's I think the key here is the subtext. Yeah. There's not much. It also lacks any particular point of view about the material, and in fact, lacks the dynamic tension of many gangster movies written by less talented writers. Everything seems cut and dried, twice told, preordained. And yeah. I mean, that's I think that sums it up very nicely. 
I, I think so too. I, I think so too. It doesn't, uh, and, and that's kind of a sad way to start this conversation. But but it takes us into this next point, which is, you know, and something we've talked about, uh, I think, fairly frequently of late, uh, you know, not to bring in Sorkin uh, too much, but we've, you know, it, this was much of the job script was caught up in this, um, uh, in, in the same sort of turmoil around historical accuracy. When we say it's a fictionalized story of this person, uh, it, it is a, a fiction. Fiction, right? It's not just a fictionalized story; it is a fiction. So, as in in as far as this film tells the story of real people uh, and real crime, um, it is far from a documentary. I think that the thing that I'm finding, yeah, it, there's there's a a real struggle about making films that are based on true stories because. It's very different telling a true story and uh, or I should say telling a story of of truth as far as what really happened versus telling a true story in a film. You're never you're going to have a very hard time finding a the right way to make those two uh, come together perfectly. You're always going to have to fictionalize. and I, I just really don't think there's much of a way around it. And I'm I'm just starting to feel like, you know, there comes a point where when you're making a film and it happens to be about real people, there's there's just this line where it's like, you know what, it's pretty much always going to be fictionalized. If you want to find out more about the real stuff, just watch a documentary about it. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I just don't think in the world of film and narrative storytelling that you're really ever going to get all of the truth that uh, that you should, or maybe the better way to say it is, you can watch it and 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 get a sense of kind of what happened, but don't, in any circumstance, start looking at that as that is exactly how it really happened. Yeah, that's a, you know it's an interesting one. I I'm I'm with you, and I I totally agree. I think you're absolutely right. The thing that bites a little bit on this film is is and and I can let go of so much. <laughs> so much for the, the just the narrative joy of the story and the visual joy of the story. But the fact that this is a story about Ness and Capone, really, I mean, this is setting up against this. These are this is the fight between these two dogs and and it's Elliot Ness of the Treasury and it's Al Capone of the mob. And and it's set at a time in which the real guys never even knew each other. Right, it was Ness going after Capone and didn't even meet Capone, didn't know him. They weren't even in the same town uh, during the period when this movie was made. I did not know that, and that uh, before I watched the film this time, and that actually made this viewing worse. <laughs> right, it just feels sort of ridiculous that that this is it. It really is a fiction, and so if I let go of that, I really enjoy the film. Uh, you know, uh, much more than than I than I do if I look at it as a as a, a attempt to tell the story, um, you know, of of what really happened. So well, that's well, all. I guess I guess the line there is. I mean, it's not like this film opens saying based on a true story, no, or or anything like that. It's not like it's it's spelling out for us. This is kind of what really happened. It it doesn't give that to us. I mean, it, it does. Right and away, only it's... you have to dig in and and discover that this was based on Ness's book. Uh, telling his story that it was loosely adapted by Mamet, and that's about as far as it goes. There, are, you're right. There are no promises made that this is that this is telling a true story. 
Yeah, and it, I mean, it's it's. I think it's a little far fetched to even say that the that Mammoth's script was based on the original book. I think that his script was more inspired by the actual TV show. I mean, I don't, I don't. He probably <laughs> went back and looked at the book, but I don't think that that was the focus. I mean, from yeah. what I heard when De Palma was talking about it, they went back and looked at the TV show and were like, "Well, we don't want to do that, so yeah. let's just take that story and play with it a little bit." And I mean, it's really just because the studio owned the the uh the i think it was uh who was it fox now i'm forgetting what the studio you're talking about the original show no the well the studio that made this movie it was fox it was fox yeah they they had the tv show as well and they wanted to uh, do something with it and so they're like well hey let's make a tv show out of or a movie out of the tv show and um you know they gave it to de palma and his producer art linson and david mamet and uh, they're like, well, here, write it. And they're like, eh, we don't want to do this TV show, but we'll play around with it a little bit. And the film was born. And it's not accurate, but, you know, it's still enjoyable. And I think you're right. It's You got to walk that line of, of enjoyable uh, versus uh, looking at it for a documentary truth. And it was Paramount. Paramount, like I said. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, okay, so that, you know, roughly out of the way, uh, there are a couple of major uh, historical points of fact that were, not, uh, that were not addressed in the film, and some of the big ones that people have gotten fired up about. Uh, in, in particular, this is a movie that is reasonably—it's uh, reasonably violent. There is some, there's some good uh, gunfights, some big gun battles, uh, and half of the Untouchables, as portrayed in this film, half of the team of four uh, were uh, killed in the course of this film. And in fact, none of the Untouchables were ever murdered in reality. Uh, the big, uh, the big goon, the big thug for Capone, Frank Nitti. Uh, at the end, the the big climax of the film is is uh, Costner's Ness really uh, being overwhelmed by a rage rush at the at the death of his friend, and uh, he throws Nitty off the roof of uh, the courthouse downtown and kills him, and that never happened, uh, and and so those uh, Nitty actually committed suicide. After he found out he was indicted for tax income evasion the second time, this is after he took over for Capone when uh, Capone went to jail. So, you know, those are the two big ones. When I read the Amazon comments, those are the two big ones that really stand out that that folks are fired up about, the, the historical folks are fired up about. Um, if you don't know those things, then they don't matter, and you can just look at the movie. Would you say, was there anything else in there that, that felt like uh, was a, a major historical point that was missed? I mean, you know, there's time compression and and stuff like that. I I don't think there's anything else that I'm aware of, but uh, you know, it's not. Uh, again, it's not something that I'm looking at. I'm not t- tackling it because of its historical right, accuracy. Right. Um, so I'm not one of the people uh, complaining on Amazon. I guess you are certainly not one of the people. Uh, so let's talk about uh, uh, Mr. De Palma. Yeah, um, I, I think you're right. I I kind of agree with you definitely have a a big love hate swing with him and but i you know i think i've said this before the thing that i love about de palma is he's always just just hitting for the rafters you know he's just is that the expression <laughs> <laughs> i'm just making expressions up now well he's he, is he where do you hit you hit out of the park 
He's trying yeah, he's, to hit out of the park. He's trying to, to call park. his shots. I think that's a thing. What's you the can... rafters expression? I don't know. Where do you do that? That's a bat. In a a bat rafters. would be in your belfry. Uh, <laughs> rat in your rafters. I don't know. He's always batting for the belfry. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> anyway, how about he's taking chances? He's he is always willing to uh, to try things, and I really like that about him. And you know, he he goes big, and sometimes it works well, and sometimes it really doesn't work. But he's always doing it, and that's the thing I really really like and respect about De Palma. I you know I do too, and and I think there are some cases in here that I he really uh, he nails it on the on the taking chances thing. Um, First of all, you know one of the things I noticed right away, and I'm I'm glad you caught uh, as well as the use of split diopter. My goodness, it's everywhere uh, in this film. Yeah, he likes um, he likes um, playing around with camera techniques, and that's something that he's always done. And you can just see that in everything. I mean, whether it's doing split screen or whether it's uh, interesting camera work. I mean, here he's got some great shots that that are like that are bird's eye view, looking straight down on Capone. Like as he, I think the opening shot he's of Capone when you shaved, see him, yeah. right? He's getting his shave, and he does that, and it's it's great to see him really experimenting and trying new things. He does the split diopter. The one that's really noticeable for me is the church when we have um, Malone and Ness talking, and it's kind of the uh, the uh, come you, to Jesus. You, yeah, you send one of his to the morgue. Yeah, it's fantastic, and you get that great split diopter with Costner's face just huge on the right side of the screen, and then you get uh, uh, Connery's face um, just a little farther back, and it's it's nice to see how he's playing around with that. I agree. the The other one, which which felt uh, ahead of its time in this case, was the uh, the first person uh, POV. That what what I have come to think of as the um, the doom shot. Uh, remember totally. the 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 uh, the first person shooter, uh, uh, oh, yeah. which was just made as a first person shooter. That was that was uh, the the creeper cam, right? Which ended up being, um, I, I don't think I'd ever seen it before. But in this case, we have a number of of times where the camera takes uh, different perspectives, and I think that's one of the unique things is that uh, is that each time we see it, it's from the a different perspective. It could be one of the one of the thugs who's creeping around uh, outside somebody's house, uh, looking through his eyes as he's sneaking and peeking through windows, uh, or it could be uh, through Ness himself and his eyes as he's trying to to make sense of the world around him. But in in either case, I think it really makes. Um, makes for a compelling kind of narrative break uh, where y- y- it's just jarring enough to to help you uh, integrate what you're seeing on screen in a way that I, I, I think just watching the characters walk through it uh, doesn't work quite as well. It definitely is something that De Palma likes to use. I mean, we, we have seen it before. I mean, he used it in uh, Blowout. In, oh, that's uh, right. That's right. At the opening with the creeper no, you're absolutely in the right. movie that they're putting together. Yeah. Um, that's definitely something that he likes to play around with. And uh, it's, I mean, it seems, I think the the thing about the technique is that it seems to fit more in the early horror genre at that period. And it wasn't something that you saw as much in this type of film. So do you think it makes this film look cheap? No, I, I mean, I think it's an interesting technique. I, I, I think that... De Palma takes these techniques and tries to play around with them in new ways. And 
granted, it's not a technique that you can really play around in in a hugely new way. I mean, a POV shot is a POV shot. Um, however, I think that he plays with it nicely in the particular scene when this guy is stalking Malone through his house. You get a, a nice sense of that um, creepiness. And I think it works well in that particular scene because we like Malone. We don't want to see him get killed. And we've built to that relationship. So I don't I don't find it cheap. I think it actually works nicely. And I think it leads to a great finale of that also. Yeah, I think so too. So Painful. Uh, how does the yeah how does the um, how does the violence uh, sit with you? I, I don't have a problem with it. It's definitely De Palma violence. I mean, he is a you know a violent filmmaker. He likes uh, putting a lot of stuff up on the screen, and he certainly does it here. Whether it's De Niro beating a guy's head in uh, with a baseball bat, and uh, or or like the um, like we see when uh, Malone gets riddled with uh, bullets from a Tommy gun, very splashy. Lots of yes. splashes. The, apparently, uh, uh, apparently uh, Connery did not realize that this was his first time ever getting squibs put on him. And apparently he was a little paranoid about it. And when the squibs went off, he got a bunch of dust and, and uh, fake blood in his eyes and had to be rushed to the hospital and everything. And, and De Palma actually had to really, really work hard to convince him to do another take because Connery was so pissed off. <laughs> oh, man. That's, uh, you, you tell Connery that first. They told him. He just, he'd never done it. He had no idea what to expect. Wow. I mean, it's, you know, his his type of filmmaking was very, very uh, British. And it was all, you know, it was kind of, I think that he fit with the, um, uh, just kind of that old school acting where it's like, I'm just acting. You know, you don't have to get into it. This method stuff is nonsense. I, I think that, you know, they just, uh, they found an easier way to act just by performing without having to really be the character or anything. Uh, one thing on the on the particular violence, the 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 baseball bat to the head thing is lauded as one of the more historically accurate components of the film, and that that uh, in fact um, it it was uh, something that uh, uh, Capone did not just to one guy at a lavish dinner table, but three. Um, so <laughs> it's funny how sources are so different on things like this. Like I read it was two. Oh, <laughs> but it, but it may or may not have been Capone. Ah, <laughs> uh, history. History is awesome. Speaking of accuracy, this show's full of it. <laughs> uh, talk to me about the uh, battleship Potemkin. Uh, again, another Brian De Palma thing. He loves putting in homages to other films and filmmakers, and the Odessa Steps sequence from Battleship Potemkin he certainly steals from for uh, the scene with the uh, the staircase at the train station. It's a really fun homage. I think that Terry Gilliam did it better in Brazil, um, particularly because it actually tied into some of the theme that was going on in Battleship Potemkin. You don't get that here. It's It's just visually kind of tied in. And I like that. I think it's a really fantastic sequence, um, and I think that uh, it's it's it hits a great point in the film to kind of help build some of that tension. I just don't feel that it really says, "Hey, I'm paying this homage to Battleship Potemkin." because it really ties in thematically. It was just more of a visual homage, and that's fine too. That's fine too. It is, uh, you know, it helps for the film to stand on some of the iconic sequences. And this one in particular is is one you see in all of the reels, you know, when you're talking about classic films, the the um you know, the baby carriage falling down the steps and there are so many players and it's all in slow motion and it's very much a chess game up and down these steps until we get to the actual um the actual shooting uh and the classic 
you know, finally leveraging Andy Garcia's stone uh, and his just dead shot. Uh, what do you call him? Gunnery? <laughs> Pistol- he's a pistolero. <laughs> pistolero. That's, uh, that's the word I'm looking for. Uh, anyway, he's he's a great shot. He's a dead shot, right? He's uh, he is a great shot, and we learned this about him earlier in the film. And he uh, he finally gets a chance. He saves the baby carriage. He's on his back. He's got his arm extended with his little gun, uh, and he is he is just locked on to um, the guy who's holding the accountant up at the top of the stairs. And Ness says, "You got him," and he says, "Yeah, I got him." And uh, he says, "Take him." And he takes the shot, and that is the that is the perfect triangle, and it's visually beautiful, and it's uh, aesthetically beautiful, and it's violently beautiful, and all of that is is the shot that you remember. It's the sequence that you remember from the movie, and um, the film stands on sequences like that. It really does, and I think that again goes back to the script that we were talking about earlier. It it fails on the structure i don't feel feel that there's a strong um a, a strong arc for the characters i don't feel the storytelling is here it's not tied together nicely like you said it's just kind of scene after scene after scene of things put together which it's nice to watch and it's fun but when you step back away from it it kind of just you know it falls apart nothing is glued together um but these sequences they are fantastic the train station sequence is one of them the train station, the the uh, when when Ness throws uh, Nitty off the roof, uh, yeah, the whole rooftop know. chase. Yeah, that's did great. he did he sound something like that? <laughs> Which is a great as he's as Nitty is screaming on the way down, and the the final punchline to that, uh, where's Nitty? He's in the car after falling. Uh, you know, 10 stories into the roof of a car. Uh, that I think is great. De Niro has some great rage sequences. I want him dead. I want his family dead. You know, he's got so, he's got some great delivery. And then the film goes to Canada on horseback, Andy. <laughs> it is the most ridiculous 20 minutes of a gangster film that I feel like I've seen. It's awful. It's awful. That's so funny. I I don't think it's awful. I don't really have the problem with it. In fact, there's a lot of stuff that happens in the in the uh, sequence in Canada that I actually do like. Um, it's not my favorite sequence, but uh, I I don't hate it. Mm. I hate it. I really do. <laughs> I I hate it. I think it's ridiculous. Although interestingly, Mamet as a playwright, the sequence in the cabin before the shootout and the chase feels uh, um, as much like a play as anything that you, I have seen on screen from Mamet in this film. Uh, it is very much staged. You can tell that there is literally the fourth wall has been taken off and it's just like laterally shot. Uh, the, that whole sequence that I just, it reminded me of just the way he staged the actors with Connery sitting at the table sort of majestically and the others standing at, at opposite windows uh, in different planes. Um, it felt very, very... Uh, much like a stage uh, shot. Well, me. and the other part of the sequence that I think is fantastic is the is the uh, the bookend to that scene when they're back in the cabin after the big shootout when we have caught the the bookkeeper and um, there's this other dead guy there. I think that sequence is fantastic and how Connery plays it or Malone, I should say, by by taking this dead body that the other guy doesn't know is dead. And threatening him and blowing his head off without the <laughs> making the other guy think that that Malone is just insane and ready to kill and using that as a tool to get this guy to turn. I thought that was just fantastic. I think that's one of the strongest um, moments that in the story. I think it really took it for a different spin that I wasn't expecting. I never 
um, I, I should say I'm always surprised by that part. I think it's it's really the scene that uh, gives me the most for characters in this. I I agree with that, and I think that as a as a tool. Uh, as a tool of threat, is really good. Uh, I didn't need to go to Canada in a cabin to experience it. And, no, and I think I, that's the that's the piece that, well, that throws me. And I completely agree with you there. I don't think that that had to happen. I think that it very very easily could have been something else. It's just, uh, I but I do like that scene. And so uh, if it were in a, in a, uh, a bar in the back of some seedy alley in mm-hmm. chicago that would have been just as fine too yeah but uh yeah I, I i do agree with you about the uh canadian scene i feel like it uh it just kind of i mean it's it's an interesting scene and i like it but all of a sudden it just feels like they step into a western it just feels it feels a little like they they kind of took it on a weird turn plus i just i feel like the whole gag with the the mounties kind of coming in early and all that just it feels like sloppy writing to me yeah yeah it really does it felt like slapstick and i I was not interested in that um but that's not the only place that sort of the film starts to kind of fall apart i mean um you know we we've talked about this the whole concept of transformation in the film who changes in this film Uh, exactly nobody nobody really and the the biggest point the biggest call to action and and the (laughs) The, the the most, uh, I think, uh, compelling argument for a character that grows happens only about, what, 18 minutes into the film? That's, yeah. And that's right. pretty much the end. <laughs> yeah, when Connery changes from, you know, he's he wants to live from being this, this beat cop who's gone, or, you know, a cop who's gone back to being a beat cop because he just wants to live. He doesn't, he, you know, he doesn't want to be in a situation where he's going to die. And then he has this transformation where all of a sudden he's going to kind of go kick butt and help bring down Capone. It happens so early on in the film. That's our only transformation in the story. It's just it. it there's nothing there that helps um, drive the story. We've got a goody two shoes and we've got a really bad guy, and they maintain that all the way through. Nobody changes. It just is is good versus bad all the way through, and and good triumphs. And I guess you could argue that. Um, Kevin Costner's character has to br- start breaking the law and doing things that he doesn't agree with in order to actually bring down Capone, which he says, he actually says when he's talking to the judge at the end, he says, you know, I've had to break every law that I've ever believed in and blah, 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 blah. But we don't see that. I mean, none of the stuff that he's doing from our perspective, seems like he's really breaking the law. And and that's, the I think, the the stumbling block in trying to build a character transformation with Ness where, yes, he's actually becoming, he's, he's making choices that are difficult because they're illegal. We don't see that happen, and that's the problem. He says it, but we never see that. And so, hence, there is no transformation. And I wonder how much of this is, is uh, based on my contention that that Kevin Costner is not an actor of the caliber to be able to pull it off. I don't think it's in the script. I, I think that, I mean, regardless of, of Kevin Costner and our opinions on him in this particular film, I just don't think it was in the script. Hmm. I think he couldn't pull it off. <laughs> <laughs> you may be right, but so am I. <laughs> I think we're both right in this particular case. Absolutely. Yeah, and and the people, the other people that were considered for this role. I mean, 
it it makes it doesn't it make it a don't give you that sort of bitter taste in your mouth when you watch it you know this like i said this is the first time where i do kind of agree with you as far as calling him kevin two by four costner <laughs> i mean i really enjoy kevin costner i do but in this particular film, I just have a really hard time with him. And I think it's because he is playing such a goody two-shoes that is is just so poorly written, so flat. I just don't think there's anything he can bring to the table with this. And, but then I do feel that some of these other actors could have actually done something at least a little more interesting with it. Mickey Rourke, Michael Douglas, Don Johnson, Mel Gibson, Harrison Ford, Jack Nicholson, Jeff Bridges, Gene Hackman, William Hurt, Tom Berenger, Nick Nolte. All of them could have, I thought done something a little more interesting with the part totally 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 agree totally agree i think it, it and even in that regard i think um you know we're, we're talking a little bit about the cast i'm I, sort of working up from the bottom uh, if if we can uh, in terms of the untouchables andy garcia uh maybe okay andy garcia and uh charles martin smith I think are are probably the best cast untouchables uh, on the list of the four. I think Andy Garcia's sort of um, uh, you know he's he's soft spoken. Uh, he clearly has a mission in life, and over the course of the film, his big transformation is he learns to cry. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, but but he is the one I am most interested in in uh, sort of keeping up with. Like he's the he's sort of the the muscle. And, uh, you know, I, I like I like watching him. I wanted more of him. Uh, and he was the one that I, I never questioned from the moment they pulled him off of the firing range to give him their brief interview and welcome him to the team. I never questioned his involvement. Charles Martin Smith, same thing. He, he comes in. We meet him. He is sitting at Ness's desk. Uh, he is working on his. He's an accountant. He's an agent with the Treasury, and he is working on the books. And from the moment we meet him, I did not question him at all. Uh, in terms of his place in the investigation and on the mission. I mean, do you agree with me on those two guys? I think they're both fantastic here. I really do like them. And this is, you know, at least for Andy Garcia, I mean, it's early-ish in his career. I mean, he'd been acting since the late 70s, but, I mean, he hadn't been in huge parts yet, right? No, and and this one I, I think was just a great—I I think this was—obviously this was a, a part that— set him up for some other great things ahead. Black Rain was just a couple years later and that was a that was a pretty big role, Internal Affairs, Godfather Part 3. Yep. Yep. I mean, yeah, I mean it really following this and I mean he did 8 million ways to die right before this. Um I, I think it was uh, kind of a, a good lead in to this film and then yeah, just kind of a really snowballed for him from there, I think. Yeah, yeah, and he ended up with a, a great couple of decades. And so I think um I, I think he was just great in this film. I really really liked him. Um, Charles Martin Smith, he's one of those guys that he's got such an interesting look. And I think, I mean, even though I've never seen American Graffiti, like that's what I always think of him from. Yeah. Yep. As you should. That guy. (laughs) He's, he's such a fantastic utility player though. I mean, we talk about him. I, I, um, I think though, I, I don't even think of American Graffiti. For me, it's Never Cry Wolf. Um, that with the wolf and the rats and oh my goodness. I've never seen that one. Is he uh, the main guy? Andy, yes, he is the main guy in that film, and he is just great. Uh, and it's such a, um, oh, it's just a uh, lonely man. It's a lonely yeah. man film, uh, and he is terrific. Does he get in it. attacked and mauled by a bear? 
<laughs> he does not get attacked <laughs> and mauled by a bear. Okay, you win on that. Uh, but the guy's got 87 credits, and he's just, uh, he's, it, it's tough to find fault uh, in the work that he does. Yeah, I he think, even popped up in the uh, TV series, The Untouchables, after this. I I do like him a lot, and I think that he's really fun the way he plays this character and how he kind of goes from being this kind of nebbish accountant sort of guy to getting all excited about bringing down Capone to, you know, kind of going crazy. I mean, he, he kind of gets this this berserker tendency when he gets a gun in his hand and goes a little nutso, and I yeah. think that's super fun to watch. Yeah, it really and, is. And, that's, and he's another reason I really enjoy the Canadian sequence, because I just really like watching him really find his true joy in life. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I, I agree. He does have a lot of fun, particularly his uh, his final stab uh, as he runs and takes a drink of the of the booze that is leaking out of the barrel. I think he's a he's got a little funny, funny physical punchline to that. Yes, he does. Uh, Sean Connery. Sean yes. Connery. He's uh, he's in this. He's in this, yes, and uh, yeah, he's Sean Connery. He's he's great. I don't know if we have we talked about Sean Connery before on the show. I don't think so. I don't I think he's like... ever come up. Oh no, of course we on uh, Indiana Jones: Last Crusade. Yep, yep. Boy, that was long enough ago. It feels like a different show, doesn't it? Yes, that was a long. It time was under ago. a different name, so that's why I don't <laughs> that's remember. Right. That's right. So Sean Connery won the Best Supporting Actor uh, Oscar for this, in addition to Empire Magazine's historical poll for Worst Film Accent. Which I think is garbage. I, mean, I think I that's think gar- it's totally it's garbage. He's a Scot, and he is playing a, a well. He's playing an I guess Malone Irish is man. Irish. They're like right across. It's, it's practically a river. That's like a Coloradoan playing a Nebraskan. I right. Mean, it's you, cake. It's cake. It's cake. <laughs> I had no problem with it, uh, but I'm sure we'll hear from somebody who did. Um, and I I would like to be educated on the differences between an Irish and a Scottish accent uh, in in 1930s I Chicago. Stephen, Stephen Smart might uh, might call in. Uh, 1930s <laughs> Chicago. Words. That's all I'm saying. Like when you add 1930s Chicago to to the equation, is it possible that an accent could get munged somehow? I'm well, just, here's who. Just throwing it out there. I I agree. Here's who. Here who. Here is who he was up against. For the Oscar. Albert Brooks from Broadcast News. Good performance there. Excellent performance. Morgan Freeman for Street Smart. I've never even seen Street Street Smart. Yeah. What is that film? No idea. A New York journalist lies when his fake story about a pimp describes a real pimp up for murder. (laughs) That sounds about right. Wow. Nominated for an Oscar. Moonstruck, Vincent Cardinia, great performance there. Mm-hmm. And Cry Freedom, Denzel Washington. So it's a it's a, a good group there. It was. I'm and not sure was... that I, I'm not sure what I would have given this to Conry. Well, he's awfully good. Hey Albert hey. Brooks was awfully good too. I think that the vulnerability displayed by Albert Brooks, if you take all those other films out of the equation altogether, the vulnerability displayed by Albert Brooks in that film is uh, uh, vastly underrated in his performance. And I think uh, is it shows more nuance as an actor than Connery displayed here, getting blown up. I think you're right. Oh. I was building a case. 
<laughs> I I like your case. I Here. think it was a, I think it was a very a uh, very strong case. I agree with you. Okay, there you go. Uh, I think this was a fairly pedestrian uh, role for Mr. Connery. I think he has certainly done better work, and I think that he was a fine elder statesman uh, in an ultimately uh, not terribly memorable uh, role, with the well, exception of the of the speech. Well, yeah, and here's the thing. I mean, it's a fun role, and yeah. and I think that's why he won an Oscar for it. And this happens some from time to time. Sometimes an actor will have a really fun performance that is big and a little over the top, and it's really memorable, and people want to give them an award because they really like the fun element of that. Albert Brooks's character is not that fun. It's you know it's it's a more difficult film to watch. I mean it's it's a fun film. I mean I do enjoy broadcast news, but it's not like the Untouchables watching Sean Connery take help take down Capone sort of fun. You know, right? I I so. agree with you. I agree with you. He had just come off of uh, the Name of the Rose, uh, the year prior, as William of Baskerville, which is one of my uh, it's one of my favorites. I really enjoy that film in terms of the sort of mid eighties. Uh, and I was a big fan of the Umberto Eco books, and so I, you know, I that one I I think I enjoyed his performance in that uh, as the monk uh, much more uh, than uh, as Jim Malone here. Um, but then, well, of course, right before that meat. was Highlander. So well, he's given more meat in those. I mean, yeah. they're bigger performances. Right. Right. Uh, okay. So there's Connery, and then uh, of course De Niro. Yeah. Uh, I mean. He's big. He's thirty. He's, what is thirty pounds? He well, put on thirty and, and pounds. He, he's big in that sense too. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, he he was actually trying to put on more weight, but he couldn't get enough on. He was right between two films, and so um, couldn't get the weight on that he wanted to. So he did have to wear a fat suit, but he did get enough weight on him to uh, to pad his face out a little bit. Yeah. Uh, there was. A, it's funny that the. the um, what De Palma wanted out of Capone in in the film versus what De Niro wanted out of Capone in the film, and and uh, one of the things that um, that I came across this passage discussing the two of them, Brian De Palma wanted Capone to seem as if he were the Sun King of Chicago, upon which all activity revolved. One reporter even asked Capone why he didn't run for the mayor, uh, for the office of the mayor, since he already effectively ran things in Chicago. Robert De Niro's response as Al Capone is that he was simply a businessman, a man who provided the people of Chicago with an important service. Violence, he said, was never part of the operation. Uh, I I think that's interesting. And I think it's interesting because I think my response to Al Capone, to De Niro's Al Capone, is that he's a charismatic character uh, that seems like he was in a different movie. Yes, that it was. It was like intercut between almost a, a between a movie that I I probably would have liked to watch, but it wasn't this one. Um, it, it, he never quite lived up to the status of villain uh, to me, even after the the excessive violence with the baseball bat. I mean, he never quite lived up to the status of villain because I didn't feel like he and Ness were connected in any way. So there wasn't a real good versus evil. There was a, a kind of a dark businessman doing some things that you know are not good in this city and a good guy who's chasing a phantom. Yeah, and I think that's the problem is we never get to see Capone doing anything that's Caponish. Yeah. he He's always like going to the opera or walking down some stairs or he's having his face, you know, soaked with the hot towel so he can get shaved. 
it just it it does always feel kind of disconnected from everything and it's very frustrating his speeches are fun i mean very big over the top speeches and i enjoy them but it just never feels like he's there it never feels like it's part of the same story i mean i i i agree completely with you 100% um although i should say he did go find capone's actual tailor and had him design some of his clothes uh, and uh, even the silk underwear, which apparently De Niro was adamant that he had to wear uh, so that he could feel, uh, quote, uh, in the character. Yeah, he's one of those method guys that Connery probably mocked. <laughs> they uh, they also had a number of Capone's uh, uh, trinkets and tchotchkes uh, on the shelves around the Capone sets. They were actual Capone things. Um, and knowing that, I find it disappointing that there wasn't a cameo of Al Capone's vault. That's what I wanted to actually see. <laughs> Just even a backgrounder of Al Capone's vault. So That would have been funny. Uh, what would you think of Billy Drago the thug as Frank Nitty? You know, he is, um, he is just one of those actors who's born to play just these sorts of thug characters. I mean, he's so creepy. Just looking at him, he fits the part so well. Um, and he's he's great to cast in a role like this because you don't have to have him speak you can just have him there and his presence gives you that sense of ooh he's bad he's he's doing something he's you know nefarious of some uh, mm-hmm. you know evil means and i think he he plays it really well here he really does and then when he does open his mouth when he's the guy sitting in the car across the street from your house telling you what a nice family you have uh, he is just diabolical. I find him just a really threatening, threatening individual, and I thought he was great in this um, uh, all the way to the very end. Uh, I'm right here, lawman, or treasury man. Yeah. Yeah. Arrest me. Uh, I thought it was just terrific. Yeah, he's great. He who, is great. Who else do you want to talk a, about? He's a busy, busy man, too. 110 credits. Yeah. I wonder how many of those are actual thugs. <laughs> right. What's the percentage of yeah. of thugs that he has going on here? Who else? I you don't want to talk know. About? Um, just a couple honorable mentions. Um, I think that uh, it's it's great seeing Patricia Clarkson here, turning up as uh, as Ness's wife. I believe this is her first uh, screen performance. She was great. She was adorable. She's always great. I mean, yeah. she's just she's just stinking great to watch and. Uh, yeah, she went from this to the Deadpool, and uh, you know, this is really a thankless role. It's just you know the wife mm-hmm. sort of role, and uh, you know I'm glad to see that she has found roles um, that are much more interesting. They give her much more exciting things to do, uh, whether it's the Pledge or um, Lars and the Real Girl, or uh, what is the one I'm trying to remember, where she's. Um, like the station agent and pieces of April, like all of those films, I just think are just so great. She's just wonderful to watch in them. Although here's a weird script thing. Like if you're going to change fictionalize something, you've got Elliot Ness, right? He's a real person. I think his wife's real name was Edna. Why do you change that? That's a good question. I'm just saying, I mean, it's just kind of dumb. Yeah. When you when you have a real person to work from, why do you change that? Do they does he ever say her name, Catherine? Um, I think that I think they does, but not to her. I think it's about her. I think someone yeah. says something about her. 
Anyway. Huh. Interesting. Interesting, right? Okay. Yeah, very strange. And your other honorable mention? Um, the other honorable mention, Clifton James turns up as the DA. And, you know, I don't really have a whole lot to say about him other than it's fun to see him. Um, I always think of him, and it's really a shame that I do, but I always think of him as the uh, doofus sheriff who turns up in uh, a couple James Bond films. Um, he's he's so terrible. I mean, his bits in uh, Live and Let Live and Die, let die. And, and Man with the Golden in Gun Vegas. are just... Oh, they're so terrible. He's the worst. He's so bad. But he's great here. He's also in like Cool Hand Luke. I mean, he's he's in some great stuff. I just, I always think of him as the doofus sheriff and I just feel bad about that. That's really funny. Yeah. Uh, so that's the cast. Uh, you know, I think one of the, the ways that the film really does work well when you get the people out of it. It's a it's a pretty good location piece. Uh, you know, they worked hard to shoot in iconic locations in and around Chicago. Uh, and uh, the the art and set decoration of of these locations is really good to my eye. No, it's beautiful, and that's even something else that uh, Ebert pointed out. He's I, I think he said something where it's uh, the movie is more interested in the era than it is in the actual um, story that it's telling. It's a beautiful, beautifully designed film. The production is just gorgeous. I mean, they they did a great job of finding great real locations in Chicago that they could transform into these places. They had the uh, the costume design. I mean, Giorgio Armani coming in and designing costumes. I've just made some great looking stuff, and I mean, just the the team here that for production: Patricia von Brandenstein, William Elliott, and Hal Gaussman uh, just did a gorgeous job of putting putting stuff together that really felt great. I mean, that's something I really enjoyed about the Capone elements was just how lush. I mean, how ridiculously lush everything was, and how kind of plain and barren everything was that uh, that Ness and Malone and his team had. Oh yeah, and the way we, you know, the way we get to exist in these old walk-ups, you know, and the the police station is just beaten down. And you're right, my goodness, the the uh, hotel uh, that was just gorgeous. The wood was like butter. I mean, it was just everything about it was was beautiful, uh, and and really capitalized on I think this this kind of noir vibe that I think they did they they executed well with the camera, um, a lot of great angles, uh, and and just captured and like you said the 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 down angles that they use to get these you know looking down on Capone looking high up stairwells looking down on the baby carriage I mean they just it really gives you such a strong sense of place uh, throughout the film that I think is just really solid and I like that they went to lengths to actually not overcast it they said you know what there were a lot fewer people living back then so let's not overfill the shots with people. And you see that when you've got those great uh, wide shots of the streets. They have people and vehicles and all that, but it's not just like big city crowds. And I think that works really nicely. Yeah, I think so too. I I think the the all of that to me uh, is kicked off with the opening credits, which I uh, I'm just really attracted to these credits. They're great. Uh, they are beautiful. Uh, they are they are uh, digital credits coming from Richard Greenberg, who is uh, also responsible for Superman and Alien and Altered States and the Dead Zone, and he's just done so much stuff. Uh, and uh, uh, many of his earlier credits uh, of these great films were all practical credits; they were all like camera shots of of you know type and things like that. And this one was the one of the first that he had done uh, digitally. 
uh, the, all the shadows, the, these long shadows. It's all the a very slow movement of these long shadows across a plane. And slowly we pull back and we see that it's the shadows come from a backlit. Um, the word untouchables uh, is, is backlit. And there's just sort of a the, the shadows of the untouchables is what provides the background to the actual credit roll. And um, uh, that was digital. That was a new thing That's in, in 87 for, for this legendary credits agency, uh, visual agency. So I thought that was really uh, great. And, and his comment on it was, uh, as the art director uh, was saying that it, it, it was boring, he said, my art director kept saying it's boring. And I looked at him, I said, it's supposed to be boring. Uh, it, it has to take its time, uh, he said. I didn't want it to feel rushed. And uh, I think it really uh, it plays very, very well uh, opening this scene. And in fact, that graphic, the final graphic that they land on, works so well for promotion, uh, the way it was used in all the posters and, and, uh, and just the, the general logo type throughout uh, the, the promotion of the film. I think it, it shows how well that, uh, that visual plays. I think what uh, pairs really nicely with the title is uh, Ennio Morricone's score. It's a fantastic um, score. It's got some great pieces in here. And the opening title bit over that uh, title sequence you just talked about Mm -hmm. is just so great. It's just Uh such a great piece of music. I really agree. This is one that is really easy to listen to uh, as a standalone piece of music it's it, you know this this is a fantastic score i only have two problems with it and it's not problems with the music itself it's problems with the pairing to the sequence the first one is the nitty chase on the rooftops which feels a little bit too cartoony frenetic for me uh and and i, I i'm totally open to to just sort of having a misread on that i i get that that one's you know now, it could work really well for you, depending on how you hear this. And I, I gather you probably like it. Well, I, I mean, I, I think what you just said, I think, helps me uh, be a little more okay with it. The fact that the music is great, it just may not necessarily work in the particular sequences. Yes. Right? And I, I think that, I mean, Marconi is somebody who's written some really strong scores. And oh. sometimes his scores work really well with the films, and sometimes the score works, um, uh, it's almost better to listen to it separate from the film, because it, it's, yes. it's kind of, you've got to, when you have strong music like that, what you're showing on screen has to be really strong too. You know, it's like matching a nice wine with a, the right dinner. Yes. Otherwise, it's going to create imbalance. So I'm glad you say it like that. Because the other sequence, I find absolute... The pairing is offensive, I think a uh, somebody would say if they were finding trouble with the wine. Uh, this is the death of Malone sequence. When, when Connery gets shot and he has all the crap in his eyes and uh, old 2x4 comes to his rescue. And Connery, I think the problem I have is that I... Uh, I I I don't believe Connery is dying. I believe he's like choked on a bone or something <laughs> and he's just gagging a lot and it's like the worst scene. It's like the only thing that could have made it worse in this movie is if they were doing it on horseback. Like it it was just a ridiculously uh lampoon lampoonable sequence of death and the music was so rich and lush and soap operatic that uh i felt like the pairing was well it was off it was just off and um and and it i otherwise it was uh stupid that's the other that's word funny. i would use for i it. yeah i mean again i think the music is fine yes 
it's just it's just the particular situation and i agree i think that the death scene uh, may have been a little much the actual attack i i enjoy the the stalking of malone oh yes the killing of malone all that stuff's great the music is great through that sequence but yeah the death is a little uh it can be read a little maudlin <laughs> it's tough uh, I never saw the the original show. This was in 1959. I think it ran for from 1959 to 63. Uh, Elliot Ness was played by Robert Stack, produced by um, Desilu Productions, Desi Arnaz. Um, do you ever see any of the original Stack Untouchables? I didn't. I didn't. But uh, yeah, Robert Stack won an Emmy in the series. So uh, it's one of those that... Uh, I, I think that what I read was, for its time, it was actually um, kind of considered pretty violent. And uh, some people were kind of up in arms about, you know, showing this much violence on TV. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. It was um, uh, followed up, obviously, by the film and then another TV show, which I also never saw. I didn't either. I never saw that one. But did you play the video game? <laughs> I didn't play the video game. It's amazing how this story, Elliot Ness's story, has uh, has kind of expanded uh, and just become so um, prevalent in stories of crime fighting. I mean, it's not just even these films. I mean, I think that that his uh, you know book that came out in '57, I, I believe, it was posthumously actually. Um, I I think that it's kind of you know even uh, gosh, what is that other movie that came out? That, uh, not. Um, gangsters there's an, another there's been a couple movies actually that uh kind of dealt with the same sort of stuff and i think that they kind of pulled from uh from this story of these guys this team going out and fighting crime and i think that is something that uh you know it gets people excited people want to kind of jump on board with that so i think it's very easy to kind of pull from a story like ness's and want to tell the story it's it, you know I think it's because, well, first of all, the crime itself of the period is legendary, right? It is, it's legendary that to the point of, of uh, you know, being so easy to fictionalize, right? This is sort of gangs uh, and, and you know, Prohibition era um, gang crime. It's, it's become iconic. And so we had to put, we had to put a good guy that was up to the task and his name became the name associated with the iconic archetype of good guy of the period. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Like, he's the one who got it. Even though what we're seeing on screen uh, is no longer Elliot Ness, uh, it is, you know, it is this amalgam of hero character traits that that were appropriate for the period. Um, it, It fits with our expectation of the good that needs to fight the evil in 1930. Right. And and in that respect, I think, you know, we can we can let go of the of some of the historical inaccuracies that we talked about at the beginning that tend to get stuck in my teeth. The uh, the TV show actually also spawned. Um, well, at the time in the 50s, when TV uh, crime dramas were uh, prevalent, they tended to be either there was a stalwart police officer that they followed or uh, or a detective and his trusty sidekick partner. Or the lone wolf, private eye, police detective. And those were kind of the stories that you had. And this kind of introduced the whole idea of this group, this team. And I think it's interesting that, I mean, I, I don't know if I've traced the uh, the TV threads, but I think you may be able to even pull from something like this 
and lead it to something like Mission Impossible, where you had a team of crime fighters mm-hmm. uh, in, in a different scope. So it's interesting how something like this could kind of uh, kind of expand and create all these different uh, types of stories. Well, and very much Mission Impossible. Now the name escapes me, but the main guy, um, Peter Graves, in 1966, really cuts the Elliot Ness uh, character in Mission Impossible, kind of building the team and and kind of leading the team, and and uh, that that's sort of the that's sort of the archetype that I think is carried through the Elliot Ness character. Um, Elliot Ness, I'm I'm looking at the IMDb page around the Elliot Ness character is really great. We see him uh, played by uh, the Elliot Ness fictionalized Elliot Ness in Boardwalk Empire, played by Jim Trufrost. Uh, he was played by Louis Balletta in My Father, My Don. Uh, Nicholas Lee in Supernatural, the television show, um, the Speakeasy played by Earl Browning the Third. Um, let's see, he was played by Dan Aykroyd on Saturday Night Live. Uh, I mean, it's just it's probably thirty uh, different Elliot Nesses all played by these different interpretations, uh, different actors. So uh, it's a it's an interesting character that has grown far beyond uh, its lineage. Well, I think you uh, said it, uh, you know, it's the sort of thing that can become parody, especially when he's such a a goody two-shoes sort of character. Well, that becomes a parody. I, I you know, I would stick to archetype uh, as a hero, uh, but you're right. That goody two-shoes is definitely um, uh, a parody. Which is how they, they play yeah. it here. Yeah, so, I think so. Which is what makes it parodyable. Shall... I like to make these words up. Shall... <laughs> Parodiable, I think, is... Paradoxical. Paradoxical? I don't know. So, uh, how'd it do? Uh, This film, uh, it did pretty well for itself. Yeah? Like, how well are we talking? Well, it cost $25 million to make in uh, $1987, which is about uh, 51 and a quarter million. So, you know, it's a pretty good budget for a little crime movie. And I think, you know, it was at a time when... um, uh, De Palma needed to, I, I think he'd had a few flops and he needed to kind of get a nice studio pick made to kind of help him get a boost and so he could go do some of his other projects. It ended up making domestically a little over $76 million, which is about 150, $156 million in, in adjusted dollars. So yeah, it did well for itself. This film ended up making about uh, almost $900,000 per finished minute adjusted. Not bad for a period gangster piece. Not too bad. Not bad at all. And it uh, ended up getting, what, four Oscar nominations? Didn't win any, but yeah, it was uh, uh, the Best Art di- art Direction Set Decoration and uh, Best Costume Design and Best Score. Outstanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I think we should probably uh, rank it. Let's do it. I think you should head over to uh, flickchart.com slash the next reel. And uh, the way this works is uh, you can rank your films and create a little stack ranking of your very favorite films. Every film you rank, it's a single elimination against one other film. How you rank it is totally up to you. Maybe it's your gut feeling about the film. Maybe it's uh, you're, you're thinking deeply about the direction and the color and the, the uh, editing. Uh, or maybe it's just uh, what you want to watch right now. Uh, but that's what we do, and uh, that's what we're going to do right now. We've kind of created a somehow a new starting point that seems to be pretty consistent now. The Untouchables or Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm with Oh Brother. I, I'm very firmly with Oh Brother. Yeah, I mean, gosh, it's funny how how times change your opinion on a film. I really used to like Untouchables a lot more. Yeah. 
Yeah, and my memory, if you'd asked me before we watched this film this week, I would have probably said The Untouchables. Yeah. The Untouchables are Taxi Driver. I would do Taxi Driver. <laughs> Rock in a hard place. You know, if I, I have to go, even off of just straight-up De Niro performances, I have to give it to Taxi Driver. There you go. Let's see, The Untouchables or Escape from New York. Well, Escape from New York is pretty bad. It's not bad. It's just it mm. just feels cheap. It oh. feels cheap. That was, I think, our problem with that one, is it felt like the world building was a little sloppy. It's so cheap, it's bad, I think, is the problem. I, I'm a little torn here, I but I think I will agree with you. I'm assuming I'm going to be agreeing with you saying The Untouchables because yeah. at least it does have some really big iconic moments. Yeah, right. It And Untouchables doesn't feel cheap. It feels the exact opposite of cheap. It is a beautiful, uh, beautifully articulated playground. Yes. The Untouchables or The Game? I'm going to go The Game. I'm going to go The Game. That hasn't popped up in a while. The Untouchables or Christine? I'm going to do the Untouchables. The Untouchables. We had some issues with Christine. The Untouchables or Detour, 1945 film noir. I'm going to have to go with Detour, I think. Me too. The Untouchables or Ninochka? Little Greta Garbo action. I'm going to be with the Untouchables on this one. Yeah. I think we had some issues with Ninochka. It just didn't uh, didn't have an amazing story. And, uh, well, that leaves it at 184 on our chart, Pete. 184, right between Detour and Ninochka. Does that, does that hurt your feelings a little bit? Like, my expectation was that it was going to be much, much better than that. And, uh, wow, yeah. it's just smarts that it didn't. It's. I mean, it, I feel like it's in the right place, but yeah, it, it, I in my memory, I had uh, felt like this was a, just a top-notch film, and it's uh, definitely a step down from there. Truly. Uh, so what does this do for your star rating? Yeah, that's a tricky one. I, I feel like I feel like it's down to maybe... I'm, I'm torn. Like, I want to say two and a half or three, and I feel like I might bump it up to three just because it does have some really really strong sequences and i think that de palma does play a strong hand at doing some really interesting things here i was going to say the same thing i was going to give it a three and i can't believe that i'm giving it a three strictly on the back of de palma <laughs> hey he's done some great stuff he sure he, no he, just... you're right you're right i you're right yeah all he's, right so yeah. that's is that so that's a three for both that's of a us three then, huh? solid three all right, that's where we landed then. Three stars over on Letterboxd. All right, where do we go from here? Well, in our little series here, we're going to be doing the only one of our series that is actually based on a David Mamet play, and that is Glenn Gary Glenn Ross. So this was written by Mamet as a play, adapted by Mamet to a film, but not directed by Mamet. Right, James saying. Foley directed it, 1992. Yeah. Uh, and I think this is when you think of David Mamet and his uh, his participation in the world of cinema. Uh, my hunch is you probably have this film in your mind. I do. Yeah, yeah. This, this is, is the is anchor. A, this is really is. Yeah. If you tell me that there is no Mammetism in this film next week, I'm gonna come to Arizona. 
This, and we're going to have words. I don't think, I, I think I'll save you the plane ticket. <laughs> okay, good. Well, I'm looking forward to that, Andy. I think that's going to be a, a good conversation. The other thing we have coming up uh, next week, we've got a, um, uh, another uh, TNR short. Uh, and this one is an editorial piece from our very own Once and Future King, Steve Sarmento. I'm very excited to get this one out in the feed. So be on the lookout for that on Tuesday. And the regular show will be back. Uh, uh, we'll be back with Gary Glenn Ross, eh, you know, Thursday, Friday-ish. Perfect. I got to go to bed. I've got to go send one of his to the morgue. <laughs> Amazon, uh, Amazon has delivered once again. Oh yes, and it I has. think I think Andy, I think our Amazon participants this week, uh, they actually agree more with us, <laughs> or we with them. I think they did. I think they did. Yeah, I got a one star uh, by Play Golf and Tennis. <laughs> 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 Says terrible, not based on much fact, and way too Hollywood. Wow, this was terrible. So Ness has to get his nerve from someone else, and Nettie did not commit suicide? There was a sprinkle of truth and a lot of unnecessary Hollywood fat in this movie, and it was not even entertaining. Worst ending ever. Catch it on cable. That that was a surprise <laughs> twist at the end. It is. It's like, it's like uh, make sure you catch this one. <laughs> exactly. Uh, mine, uh, Johnny Pasta... <laughs> Johnny Pasta wrote, uh, this was a recent one, another recent one from uh, just August of this year, of last year. Don't get me wrong here, but Kevin Costner was definitely miscast for the part of Elliot Ness. He should stick to his niche with baseball movies and such. If it weren't for De Niro and Connery in this movie, it would totally nosedived. For me, I'll pass. and <laughs> I'll pass and felt like I wasted two hours of my day watching this. Costner was just not convincing enough for me. He don't belong in gangster movies is all I am saying. So take it for what it's worth here. Johnny Pasta. August Johnny, 2015. Johnny Pasta. And so people Yeah, so people didn't uh people didn't really jive with that. And that was a, that's definitely a subset of of what the uh what the haters felt. It is. I think. Yeah. So I I think you're right. Here endeth the lesson. Thanks Amazon. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. It's the way to go. Okay, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season five, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. I'm getting better at this. 1939. Gone with the Wind. Wizard of Oz. Goodbye, Mr. Chip. Uh, Hound of the Baskervilles. Nice. Meryl Street. Uh, Kramer vs. Kramer. Uh, Sophie's Choice. Uh, French <laughs> Lieutenant's Women. Nice. How about Naughty Children? Uh, uh, the Bad Seed. Uh, Village of the Damned. The Innocents. Nice. Uh, your favorite, David Mamet. 
Clintary Ross. Oh, I figured you'd nail that one. We've covered lots of great movies that started as books. Books like Metropolis, Manhunt. Ministry of Fear, The Great Escape. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it, too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. 